Uh, well, I know how you came in here today. Uh, maybe you came in, uh, you just had a great weekend. Um, I mean, if you had an awful weekend with family, just the fact, that the fact that the cats won could atone for all the sins of your family. Um, but maybe you came in here a little more like uh, you feel like a... a like you have PTSD after that many days with your family, um, but however you come, you, you've entered uh, you've entered a good place. Um, it's Advent season. Uh, we're, we move on in the Christian calendar. You move on from Thanksgiving very quickly. <laughs> uh, you look forward to Christmas very quickly. Uh, you know, Thanksgiving is really uh, it's a national holiday, but it's not necessarily a Christian holiday. I mean, it, it's not an unchristian thing. Uh, but it, it, it doesn't have the same weight that Christmas does. Uh, the Advent season is, is one uh, that, that we do not just uh, to, to, to have a felt need. You know, it's Christmas time. It's Christmas time out there. Therefore, we make it Christmas time in here. Now, actually, it's Christmas time in here. And that may or may not change things out there. Uh, we're going to celebrate Jesus and Jesus' coming richly uh, in these four weeks leading up to Christmas Eve. And what, what we celebrate is his, his first coming, uh, but it's also, this, this word Advent means the coming of a significant figure or significant event in history. And uh, that's what Advent means. Uh, it's an adventure <laughs> uh, to wait for Jesus' second coming. That's why it has application to you and for me. It's not just that we look back, we're also looking forward. And so what Robert and I have done is we've selected Old Testament passages that point to the coming of the Messiah. And we're following uh, four themes. We're following hope tonight, love next week, uh, joy the third week, and finally peace. And then on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day, uh, we will be uh, looking at New Testament passages about Jesus' coming. And, um, and if you're like me, when we use words like drama and story and fairy tale, which is kind of, it was just kind of the language of Christmas. Uh, it's kind of the enchantment of Christmas. Uh, th th those words seem so incongruent with the way that Christianity is usually presented. Uh, usually Christianity is presented as a moral code, uh, or it's presented as a, a series of disconnected facts about Jesus in the Bible. Yet the Bible very clearly lays out the history of the world as one where God created the cosmos. We corrupted the cosmos. Christ has come to redeem creation of the cosmos, and one day his work of redemption will be consummated. That's a drama. It has all the ingredients of a drama. It has plot. It has characters. It has tension. It has resolution. And one of the, 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 one of the beautiful parts about the scriptures is that this drama is told through so many different literary genres. If you were to look at the Bible and you were to, to, to kind of categorize, what kind of genres do we find? Well, of course you find narrative. That's what we find to be really easy. Or we find the epistles, like, like where we're at now. They're somewhat straightforward. But what, catch, what, what trips us up is when we get to poetry. What trips us up is when we get to wisdom literature. Or we get to prophetic literature, like we'll look at tonight and especially when we look at apocalyptic literature. All of these, as moderns, we, we, we find to be really challenging to interpret. But our exposure to this whole scope of literary genres is usually very limited. So when we come to this prophetic passage like we're going to look at tonight, that we're studying, we usually throw up our hands in the air and ask, what in the world does this mean? I get it. I totally get it if that's you tonight after we read our text. But I think if you're patient with yourself... Uh, you'll find that your imagination will be engaged as we read this text. 
and you'll be intrigued by this unfolding drama in the advent of Jesus. That is what we are hope happens in these four weeks, is that your imagination is engaged, and you begin to imagine what would it be like if Jesus came again? How beautiful would that be? What would it be like to be like John the Baptist, like we read earlier, who comes upon Jesus and says, look, the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. Expectation, hope, imagination. These are the words of Christmas. So let's read our passage, Micah chapter 5. We'll be looking at the first six verses. Verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Epaphrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, no matter uh, how passionately I present this uh, sermon, no matter how clear I am with this content, no matter how many times I just read that text, Lord, nothing happens apart from your spirit. Lord, we are, are, are as desperate as ever for you to come and, and, and add your spirit to this word to cause transformation to happen in our hearts. Lord, do this work in us even now. In Christ's name, amen. Um, so I have two points tonight. Uh, we'll look at a future victory, the future victory of a king in verses uh, 1 uh, through the very first part of, of, of verse 5. And then we'll look at uh, the present victory of the king's people. So the first is the future victory of the king. The second one is the present victory of the king's people. Uh, so so in, in the first one, the future victory of the king. Um, you, you look at verse 1, and uh, you see that our passage starts with great distress. Uh, he, the, the call from Micah is, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us, and with a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. What Micah is doing here is he's an 8th century prophet, and Israel is under attack of Assyria. Assyria has, 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 has laid waste to all of Israel, and they've backed them all the way into this one town. They've taken all the other towns but Jerusalem. Jerusalem has a great big wall around it, and they've laid siege against it. And when you lay siege on something, that means nothing can come into that city. No deliveries could be made, or Assyria would, or Assyria would cut those deliveries off. So they had, to, they, had to li- they had sustenance living on anything. that they, If they couldn't, if they couldn't uh, produce it within the walls of Jerusalem, it wasn't going to get into their walls. 
These were very, very dark days. Assyria had all but beaten them. It, 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 looked, it looked very, very bleak. It was 63 to nothing late in the fourth quarter. It was, they were in bad, bad, bad shape. And then you see in the, in the, in the last half of it, uh, what's really humiliating is that they mock, uh, they mock the nation by not killing their king, which is well, that's what's meant by judge of Israel, but simply slapping him on the face. This is distress. This is their real-life predicament. This is where, Micah, where the people are that Micah's talking to. And they had lost hope. They had lost hope that God would, would give them a ruler who would bring peace to their nation. And it was in this state of hopelessness that Micah delivers the promise of a future victorious king. And what we'll see in, in, these, in these verses, really two through four, is that, um, is that the, the nature of this victory will be surprising, It'll be imaginative, it'll be inclusive, and it'll be peaceful. So first, let's look at surprising. Do you see the surprise in verse 2? This ruler of Israel is going to come from Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem, to you and I, we've heard of it. But Bethlehem back then uh, wasn't even listed in the list of cities in Israel in Joshua's list. Joshua, in the Old Testament, he lists all the cities in Israel, and Bethlehem didn't make the list. That's how small it was. It was on the backside of nowhere. It was so small that if you were from there, you wouldn't say it because no one would have heard of it. What we're used to is rulers coming from important places, not places no one heard of. I mean, think about it. Hillary Clinton was from Chicago. Donald Trump's from New York City. And even in a country where upward mobility is not just allowed, but oftentimes encouraged, it's still really hard as an American to get out of rural America. It's really hard to get out of the urban ghetto to achieve any kind of status. But in biblical times, it was impossible. You had to be born into status in order to have status. Yet the ruler of God's people is from Nowheresville. Why is that? Well, God is almost entirely unpredictable. That's the only thing that's predictable about God. But one thing you can be sure of is that in his unpredictability, he's going to be subversive. He's going to take the ways of the world and turn them on their heads. For example, how do you win a claim in our society? You achieve, you make money, you build your brand, which really just means be really loud and self-promoting. But how does Jesus, how does he win a claim? He's going to be from a small town and born of a virgin. He isn't born into a white-collar, achieving, aristocratic family, but a blue-collar family without any money. He's born in a barn. His coming was subversive. It was surprising that the ruler would come from Bethlehem. Why is this so important for me and you? I think it's important because it sends a very clear message to us that we're to be cautious about what we value. If you're looking, if, we, if you were looking for a potential ruler with the resume that espoused the things of the world, you would totally miss Jesus. That's why so many people miss Jesus in the Gospels. Both the Jews and the Romans had a really hard time believing that someone like Jesus could be the Son of God, the promised Messiah. Why? It's because both their cultures and ours value power, not humility, value riches, not poverty, and value pleasure, not suffering. So this future king, this, this ruler who's going to come, 
is going to, it's going to be a surprising kind of thing. The second thing that we see is that the, that the coming of this future king is, is going to engage our imaginations. It's going to involve, it's going to be imaginative. Um, this coming king, look at it in, in, um, the, uh, in verse, at the end of verse 2. It says, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Okay, uh, look at that closely. <laughs> uh, if the king's arrival is not here, how is he going to be from the past? His coming defies logic. He's going to be both ancient and future. That's crazy. So we just saw that he's really normal, that he's from a town like Bethlehem. It's natural. That's why it's so surprising. But he's also otherworldly. He's supernatural because he does not fit nicely on this time-space continuum by being ancient and future. And here's what I'm afraid of with the church. I'm afraid that we've demystified the Christian faith. See, there used to be, I mean, there are here, uh, but there used to be in all churches, there used to be stained glass windows that when the sun hit them just right, what radiated was something hard to put words to. There used to be an architecture that communicated the transcendent in such a way that you knew God was someone you couldn't fully articulate. There used to be a, a weekly meal, the Lord's Supper, that not just looked back as a memory at the past event of Christ's death, but it was a meal where Christ dwelled with you in the now in, the, in a mysterious way. See, all this sounds like fairy tale, doesn't it? Big buildings, beautiful stained glass, a mysterious meal. But what if the drama of the Christian faith is kind of like a fairy tale? What if the drama of the Christian faith has a king in the very middle of it that's both ancient and future? Friends, this is the stuff of children's books, of which I read a lot of these days. But don't you want to go beyond what can be verified by science? I think that's why we're hooked on Star Wars. I think that's why I feel like every other person I meet talks about staying up all night to watch Stranger Things. But see, what happens is in Star Wars and Stranger Things and Beauty and the Beast and Cinderella, they all give us glimpses of once upon a time and happily ever after. And the gospel comes along and it meets our imagination's demands. And this is what the prophets did to Israel. They helped God's people hope by engaging their imaginations with pictures of a future king. And our imaginations can still be engaged in this way. It's not any different for us. They had the prophets. We, for, for the second coming, we have the book of Revelation. And I bet the way that we look at the book of Revelation is the way that a lot of people look at the prophets. We kind of roll our eyes and think, that's really weird. Or maybe they looked at the prophets and they tried to decode it and figure it out with some kind of table. That's what we do with Revelation. But what if Revelation was given to us by God to engage our imaginations about the world that is to come? What if we approached it as a book to get caught up into instead of a book to be explained? See, Jesus is the king, and he can handle your imagination. He's ancient, and he's future. So this coming king, this future king... Is going to, his coming is going to be a surprise, and his, his, his coming is going to be imaginative. Thirdly, 
Uh, his coming is going to be inclusive. Look at verse 3 and, and, and at verse 4, actually. Um, verse 3 says, The rest of the brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So the, the, the rest doesn't mean like lay down and go to sleep rest. It means the remainder, the remainder of the brothers. In verse 4, it says, They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So this, this coming um, wasn't just for this nation state of Israel. It wasn't just for this one, the, the city that was left in Jerusalem. See, the people of Israel, in verse 3, it, it, it's referred to um, here as, as the nation of Israel. But what we see in the New Testament is that, that, is that uh, Israel becomes the church. So the rest of the brothers here in verse 3 looks forward to the non-Jews who will be engrafted into God's people when Jesus establishes his kingship on earth. See, Jesus, if you were to read the Gospels, you'll see that he doesn't confine himself to Jews only in his earthly ministry. And then after Jesus ascends into heaven and he sends his spirits in Acts 2, the spirit doesn't descend on, on Israelites. It doesn't just descend on Jews. It descends on all ethnicities and races. Thus, we see a huge shift occur here. See, for the most part, the, the Old Testament people of God are the Jews. There's exceptions. There's Naaman. There's others. This was not supposed to be the case, but it was. This was reality. God always wanted them to engraft in other nations, but that's not what they did. And here in Micah 5, we have the promise that the nations are all going to come under the king's lordship. But if, it's real easy for us uh, to, to point our fingers at Israel and say, man, you really messed that up. You should have been including in all these nations, the surrounding nations, into your people as God's people. But we're just like them. We prefer our own people over other people. Therefore, we presume that our people have a privileged place at the king's table. See, our problem is that racism is in our hearts. And what happens in racism is we make our cultural norms gospel when they really aren't. They're just cultural norms. But when we have racism in our hearts, it's, it's really hard to learn other cultures. Because racism is in our hearts, it's really, it, it's really hard to listen more than you talk. Because racism is in our hearts, it's really hard for us to question our ways of thinking and do the hard work of filtering out truth from our culture. Friends, every race and every culture under heaven will be represented in heaven. And if we are somehow able to experience heaven's diversity in the here and now, it would make us terribly uncomfortable. So why not begin to get comfortable with people who are different than you now? Our hearts make this difficult, but so does our society. It's really hard in our society to expose ourselves to people who are different than us. So what it's going to take, it's going to take both a desire and an effort to get to know people who aren't like you. And what you're going to see in our church is that we're going to take steps. They're going to be baby steps. But we're not okay with how we are here. If all kinds of people are going to be in God's kingdom, all kinds of people who live close to in and around downtown should be in our church. We should, be, we should start experiencing heaven now. This ancient future king is inclusive, and he's going to gather in the rest of the brothers, and he's, his kingdom is going to extend to the ends of the earth, even to the ends of downtown. So this is what this kingship is going to be like. It's going to be inclusive. It's going to be imaginative. And it's going to be a surprise. And lastly, it's going to be peaceful. 
You see in verse 4 and verse 5 these two different phrases. Uh, the first one is uh, that, that finally uh, the king's subjects are going to dwell secure. And then that, that first line in, cha- in, in, in verse 5 uh, is what has grabbed me all week long. And he shall be your peace. He is our peace. The word peace here is shalom. And uh, uh, oftentimes you, you, you'll see this word, uh, you'll hear this word. And what it means isn't the absence of conflict. It doesn't mean the absence of strife. Uh, if it just meant that, it meant that you went, from, uh, you went to violence to nonviolence. Uh, but what, what shalom means, it doesn't just get you to nonviolence. It just doesn't get you to, to the, there's, there's no hostility in your environment. What peace gets you, it gets you to flourishing. So it gets you in the black, not just out of the red. That's what shalom means. And he is going to be our peace. But look at that even more closely. It doesn't say that he brings us peace, but that he is our peace. And what this phrase reminded me of is uh, recently I came back uh, from being gone for a few days and uh, I come to the front door and we have three children, seven, four, and a baby. The baby was where he usually is, just laying there. And um, (laughs) the seven and four-year-old, they come running at the front door. And I was really hoping um, that they would say, Daddy, we love you so much. We missed you. So glad to have you home. Don't leave us again. But they didn't say that. You know what they said. Daddy, what did you get me? <laughs> Isn't this what we do with Jesus? We want him to give us things, but we want his gifts apart from him. See, King Jesus is not interested in giving you gifts without also giving you himself. Romans 8.32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him, graciously give us all things. So he's going to give you all things, but he's also going to give you himself. See, Jesus will not take on the role of being your cosmic, emotional Santa Claus who exists to make you feel positive things like peace. Nor will he take the responsibility of ensuring that your life will be conflict-free and peaceful. King Jesus did not come to give you peace without also giving you himself. This is the future king. This is what the future king longs to do. He's going to come. It's going to be a surprise. It's going to engage our imagination. He's going to include all kinds of people, and it's going to be peaceful. This is what the future victory will look like. But look at the, 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 the last half of, of verse 5 and 6. These are really puzzling. Um, and, and what we see here, really, is the present victory of the subjects of the king. And you, you know, all good stories, they, they call you into the story. They won't let you just stand far off as a mere observer. They're going to call you to be a participant. And this is especially true in the biblical drama. Micah's audience weren't meant just to sit there, hear verses 2 through the first part of verse 5, on their hands and be like, Hallelujah, the future king is coming. But what we see in verses 5 and 6 is that they get engaged. See, it's not the king who's victorious in verses 5 and 6. Six, it's, it's the princes and the shepherds. That's who's victorious. It, and they're the ones who are, who are leading on behalf of the king. And this, this victory that, they, that the shepherds and, the, and, and that the princes have is not, some, it's not over some future adversary, but it's against their present adversary. It's against Assyria. So they're going to move from being under siege in verse 1 by Assyria 
to treading on Assyria. This is a dramatic change of events, right? And you might say, well, this isn't, this isn't relevant for us. We live in America. We're not under siege. But I think this is altogether relevant for us. See, we often think Jesus is going to make us uh, victorious without our involvement. But that simply isn't the way he chooses to work. He is calling you and he's calling me he, he, to, that he wants to empower us to do the, what we couldn't do on our own. So you don't have to wait till heaven to experience victory now. But what does this victory look like? For Micah, the victory was warlike. But is that true for us now? Well, Ephesians 6, what it tells us is that our battle is not against flesh and blood. That our battle is spiritual in nature. Our battle is against, our, 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 our enemy is not the Assyrians. Our, our enemy our, it's, it's against the rulers and the authorities, the cosmic powers over the, dar- the present darkness. It's against the spiritual forces of evil. Our battle is against unseen schemes of the devil that looks to prey upon our sinful hearts. The battle is spiritual, so it's really hard to put your thumb on it. It's hard to name exactly what it is that our hearts are warring up against. So how do we know? Well, again, let me go back to Ephesians 6. In Ephesians, some of the the loftiest uh, theological languages is is used. It's dense, and it's very rich. And and it's some of the, the richest theological language that we see in the New Testament. But when he gets to these closing chapters, chapters 5 and 6, he boils down our Christian life to our relationships. He boils our our relationships down to our relationships with our spouses, with our children, and with our employer. It's with our job. In other words, if you want to know the real aim of theology, you just have to look at the normal, mundane relationships that we have with people. And what he does is he follows these admonitions about relationships in, in 5 and 6. And then you get the back half of, of section 6, and it's about spiritual warfare. So if you want to know where this battlefield for spiritual warfare often occurs, it often happens in your home. It often happens in your job. It's not Assyria that's our problem. It's our home. It's our jobs. So it's these normal parts of our lives where we face the fiercest and the most intense spiritual battles. And when I'm really honest about the desires that lurk in my own heart, I must admit that they're most clearly revealed in my day-to-day life. And really, I'd rather face Assyria. But just remember, some of, this, some of these may be familiar to you. If not, I'd encourage you to go back and read these tonight. But listen to some of these relational admonitions from chapters 5 and 6. To husbands, he, he calls them to love their wives at cost. To, uh, it, to, he calls them to love their wives at the very cost of their own life. So as husbands, we're to lay our emotions and our time and our gifts on the altar of loving our wives. And then for wives, wives are to submit to their husband as to the Lord. So there's this dance. There's this dance of loving leadership and willing submission. And there's mutual respect. And this is the gritty business of our spiritual lives. This is real life. This is real struggle. And this is where spiritual warfare happens. Then we see it with children. And children, listen up. I know you're not in your lesson tonight. In verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, Obey your fathers and mothers in the Lord. Isn't that hard? Wouldn't you rather do what you want to do than obey your parents? 
Then you see fathers. So we get husbands, wives, children. We get to fathers, and it says, Do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So there's this call to be firm without being angry and provoking them. That's really hard to do, at least for me. Then you get to employees and employers. It calls employees uh, to, to obey their employers from a sincere heart as opposed to obedience from a heart that simply wants to maintain their job and not get in trouble. Then it calls employers. They have, they have some duty too, not just employees. Employers are to serve their employees with goodwill and not threaten their employees. Goodwill seeks to treat each employee as an individual, to have their best, best interests in mind and not just the bottom line of your company. This is tough work. This is where spiritual warfare happens. You don't face Assyria. You face your home and you face your job. These commands are really hard. But don't you see that behind their difficulty is a sin in your own heart? Don't you see how the devil is using his schemes to shift blame onto someone else so that you don't, so, that, so it doesn't land squarely on you? This is the hard work of the Christian life, and this is why Jesus came. This is our battleground. And we're promised that we're going to experience some degree of victory in this life. Just like Israel experienced some victory over Assyria. But eventually, you know what happened to Israel? They got whooped by Babylon. They did experience defeat. And we will always, this side of heaven, be left wanting for more. We're going to want more harmony in our relationships. We're going to want greater love and increased obedience. And for every victory, there's a defeat as our flesh and Satan get the best of us. But God has given us this great tool, this tool of hope. And this hope was the hope of Israel, and it's the hope of Christmas. It's Jesus. See, Jesus' first coming was a surprise. He came to Bethlehem. His second coming is going to be a surprise. He's going to come like a thief in the night. No one knows the day or the time, not even the angels in heaven. His first coming was imaginative because he was the ancient of days. His second coming, he's going to rebuild all of creation. It'll be more beautiful than we could ever imagine. Jesus' first coming issued in a new wave of diversity into God's people like nothing Israel ever experienced. Jesus' second coming is going to bring in a new level of diversity like no one has ever imagined. In Jesus' first coming, he sent out an invitation not just to all, to, to, not just to all but only the weary and the heavy laden to come to him for rest and so that he could be their peace. But in Jesus' second coming... His peace will reign over all the earth. <coughs> See, Jesus was the hope of Israel, and he's the hope of Christmas. He's the hope of a new world, and perhaps most shockingly, he's the hope for victory in our normal day-to-day -day lives. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are uh, so prone uh, to hear that victory is possible now and not believe it. Lord, we're so prone that when we hear a victory now, Lord, we, we want to define what victory really is. We want to be something more lofty than something so mundane like the relations we have in our homes and our jobs. But Lord Jesus, I pray that we 
uh, we would expect victories in these areas. And Lord, that we would, uh, that you would give us uh, your heart. Uh, Lord, that we would experience some of this now. Lord, we are hungry for it. In Christ's name, amen.